Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of Stalin, and we'll be finding out how he became one of the most ruthless totalitarian leaders of the 20th century. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about the women left behind by Robert Scott's fatal expedition to the Antarctic, looked at the life of Julian of Norwich, the remarkable woman who wrote the first book in the English language 650. 50 years ago and discussed new eyewitness accounts of the Great Irish Famine. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Today, the 5th of March, marks the 70th anniversary of the death of Stalin, the dictator who ruled the Soviet Union from 1924 until his death in 1953. Remembered for his use of fear and terror, Stalin has been blamed for the deaths of millions of his countrymen as he led the Soviet Union through the Second World War and into the Cold War. In tonight's show, we want to explore the rise to power and the rule of someone who is acknowledged as a gifted and talented leader, but also as one of the most most brutal and ruthless. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Geoffrey Roberts is Professor of History at University College Cork and is a recognised world authority on Stalin, the Second World War and the history of Soviet military and foreign policy. His most recent book is Stalin's Library, A Dictator and His Books, and he's also published about Stalin as war leader and many aspects of his foreign policy. Dr Anna Toropova lectures in the School of Russian and Eastern European Studies at the University of Oxford and is an expert on the culture and medical history of Russia and the Soviet Union and she's the author of Feeling Revolution, Cinema, Genre and the Politics of Effect under Stalin. Professor James Harris is Professor of Modern European History at the University of Leeds and is an expert on dictatorship and anti-liberal ideas in 20th century Europe, particularly the Soviet Union under Stalin and his books include The Great Fear, Stalin's Terror of the 1930s. He's also co-authored Stalin's World, Dictating the Soviet Order and edited the collection the Anatomy of Terror, Political Violence Under Stalin. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Professor Rosemary Sullivan, Professor Emerita at the University of Toronto and the author of Stalin's Daughter, and Professor Polly Jones, Professor of Russian at the University of Oxford and the author of Myth, Memory, Trauma, Rethinking the Stalinist Past. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. But I might begin, Jeffrey, with you. And given that today is the 70th anniversary of Stalin's death, I was wondering, could you just maybe give us a sense of what the thinking is about Stalin today? Is he remembered primarily as this brutal, ruthless dictator? Is he remembered for his leadership during the Second World War? Is it a mixed legacy or is it just a, a uniformly negative one? Well, thanks for the the easy uh, softball question to to start this discussion. I, I think the answer to your question is is what you just said. He's uh, remembered uh, in different ways. He's remembered as a brutal dictator. He's remembered as a, a great war leader. Um, there's some very hostile, negative opinions about Stalin. There's also very um, uh, some, some very positive opinions. I think certainly his reputation is riding quite high in Russia uh, at the moment. Um, you know. Successive opinion polls, uh, you know, show uh, that you know, his reputation as, as a historical figure uh, is rising in Russia and has been rising for the last 20, 20 years or so. Now, that, that 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 reputation is very much you know linked to his role in uh, in the defeat of Hitler in uh, the Soviet victory over over, over Nazi Nazi Germany. There's also creeping in, particularly in Russia, but also internationally as well um a more kind of like um we might come a more kind of like positive review or look at you know the, the, the soviet socialist system that was constructed under stalin okay yeah it was a brutal massively repressive uh, system in which millions of people died but i think it's also coming you know, it's making a comeback as being seen as actually 
you know, an interesting uh, and significant experiment in uh, a radical alternative to capitalism, and that there are actually, you know, positive lessons to be learned uh, from the Soviet experience of socialism, as well as many negative ones as well. And it's interesting, your Stalin's Library book showed that, you know, it maybe showed a different perspective or a different insight into Stalin, that this was someone who read, who was interested in ideas. There were some ideas that he, he absolutely hated and was determined to, to destroy and exterminate those involved with them. But this was someone who had a clear intellectual hinterland. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, in, in terms of um, at least certainly scholarly perception of Stalin, there's a much clearer view of Stalin uh, as uh, as an intellectual, someone interested in ideas, someone appreciated the power of ideas, was trying to use ideas, deploy ideas as part of his kind of utopian uh, project for the transformation of of society. Now the idea that, that Stalin, you know, w- 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 was an intellectual, quite an interesting intellectual. That that wasn't my invention in in Stalin's uh, library. We, we have James Harris here and uh, his book about Stalin dictating Stalin's world. That was a very important contribution. To this whole reappraisal of Stalin as an interesting and, and in some respects, anyway, a significant intellectual. So, so I see you know, my latest book, Stalin's Library, a dictator in his books, as part uh, as, as contributing to um, that portrait of Stalin uh, as an action. And, and I think you know my work and James's work and work of other people has, I think, uh, helped to affect quite a significant shift in, in the direction to a more kind of rounded appreciation of Stalin, not just as a, a politician. A bureaucrat or uh, a repressive dictator, but also as an intellectual, someone who very much valued ideas. And I'm fascinated by how the Soviet Union, the newly formed Soviet Union, changed under the rule of Stalin. There was a cultural revolution, I suppose, which continued from Lenin into Stalin. But it definitely seems to have been a huge transformation for the way the Soviet Union operated, the culture of the of the entity, and 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 in the way I suppose people experienced life under this regime. Um, absolutely. I mean, one of the the key essential. You know, features of uh, the Stalin revolution. You know, usually we think about rapid industrialization, of course, forced collectivization. But you know, as Sheila Fitzpatrick has very convincingly shown, you know, a, a really crucial aspect was also cultural revolution. The fact, you know, that we get replace all these old bourgeois specialists with proletarian, a new red intelligentsia, which allows a huge amount of upward mobility for workers, um, those of proletarian um, origins who go into these new positions, who go into uh, managerial positions, I mean, who go into higher education, and who become a very loyal support base for the party. And I think that's another thing to, to bear in mind with Stalinism, right? It's, of course, very repressive, but it does give these rewards and incentives for, for people who, who do support the system. And Anna, do you think there was a sense that there was a belief that certain things were needed to survive and that the only way the Soviet Union could succeed was by these brutal, ruthless methods, by, you know, having a tight reign of of control on the people and monitoring what was done and, Mm -hmm. you know, brutal towards the the, the farmers? And was there a sense that it was driven by a belief that this was necessary to survive? I mean, absolutely. Especially if you look at collectivization, you know, that, that repressive element is so prominent there. It is a, you know, a, essentially a civil war in the countryside. It's run as this militaristic campaign that uses massive coercion. But, you know, I think if we are to understand Stalinism fully, it's that focus on repression, I think, only gets us so far. You know, if we want to kind of understand why so many people became invested in building Stalinism and in Stalinism as a way of life, I think we have to look at what the system offered, you know, the kind of new identity, essentially, that it offered millions of people, um, you know, from, from, say, a peasant to a new identity as a Soviet worker that brought with it a whole range of, of benefits, uh, an education, a skill, um, and also a better standard of living for many people. We do also see um, the beginnings of, of a welfare system, very paradoxically, right, being um, put in under Stalinism. So I think it's, it's the complexity of uh, the phenomenon that I think has always attracted me. Um, you know, this massive repression at the same time, for example, that at the beginnings of a, 
of welfare states and a range of different incentives being offered for those, you know, for, for supporting the system. Um, and so in my book on feeling revolution, for example, I show, you know, how mobilizing emotion was a really part, a crucial part of the Stalinist culture industry, mobilizing these feelings like hatred for enemies, feelings of happiness, um, that became really important. You know, emotion was a crucial part of, I think, of Stalinist politics and to kind of understand how the system functioned, why people invested in, I think that's something we should pay attention to. James, the story of Stalin's rise to power is a fascinating one and it, it's, it's more than just the story of Stalin himself, it's the story of the Russian Revolution and what happens afterwards and their transformation from being revolutionaries into a mass party controlling the Soviet Union. You're working on a book on this. What, what aspects do you want to explore and uh, what is so exciting for you about that story? Underlying things that both Anna and, and Jeffrey have said is that Stalin is you know, undergoing this kind of reappraisal um, in the historiography. And I think we need to remember that much of you know, what we thought we knew until relatively recently, until the archives opened, which I guess is already 30 years ago, so not quite so recently, but much of what we thought we knew um, really came from, from Leon Trotsky. And Leon Trotsky, of course, was you know, close to the center of events through much of the, of the, the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, and we didn't have very many sources on Stalin or Stalin's rise to power. And so there was an over-reliance on Trotsky's ideas. And reading sort of, you know, Trotsky's uh, work on Stalin is, is, you know, it's a bit like a situation in which you only have one biography of Margaret Thatcher and it's written by Arthur Scargill. You know, there was kind of a, not a, a, a tendency to kind of look at that carefully enough and, and think about the biases that were, that were uh, built into it. In any event, Trotsky portrays Stalin as a kind of ruthless backroom politician, a bureaucrat, someone who is too dull to even understand what Marxism-Leninism is. And he uses, um, according to Trotsky, Stalin uses his, his role in the secretariat, which is sort of an HR department of the party to you know, pack political offices with his friends and followers, and, and thus just kind of squeeze out of politics those who are, who are more capable than he was. And, you know, what we've, what we've learned, as Jeffrey hinted, is that Stalin is a much more uh, capable uh, theoretician. He's a much brighter guy than, than we've given him credit for. And across the 1920s, or, you know, in the, in the course of a kind of a conflict within the party about how they were going to build socialism. Stalin, in many ways, won the debate. Um, Trotsky presents this view that Stalin used the, the ideas of the, of the right opposition to, to defeat the left and then used the ideas of the left to defeat the right, a kind of you know, pure political opportunism. But I think what we understand now is that the, the party as a whole was moving towards the left across the 1920s, turning against the kind of quasi-capitalist system they had in the 1920s and, and moving towards, you know, what became the great break, this industrialization drive and rapid co collectivization. And Stalin kind of reflected the spirit of the party in many ways, led it um, through, through the 1920s. So we have a different, a very different perspective than that which was, you know, driven by Trotsky um, up to and through the Cold War. And your work also shows that there was a difference between what Stalin was saying in public and public writings and what he was saying and writing in private. Do you, do you know what? I would, I would actually say the opposite. When my uh, co-author and I put together our proposal to, to go and, and work in, in the Stalin archive when it just opened, that was exactly what we said we were going to do, to look at the gap between the public and the private. And, and you know, there must have been, I don't know, 15, 20 of us the scholars going in there to look at the Stalin archive when it just opened. And, you know, all of us, uh, to a man and woman, within about three weeks understood that there was no gap between the public and the private, which was really quite striking, that what Stalin said in, in private was, was matched by the kinds of discussions and, 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 and private letters behind the scenes. There's something that comes out, I mean, that really fascinated me, which is, I mean, what I focused on is Stalin's, uh, how should we say, his, what he read, what information he was receiving um, on, a, on a daily basis. And Stalin was a voracious reader, read hundreds of pages of foreign intelligence, of domestic opinion reports, 
And if you look at that material and then you look at the decisions that Stalin was taking, then you can see how he was interpreting the, the information that he was receiving. And what you see is really a kind of a, a system, an information system that very much emphasized threats that the Soviet Union was facing. And it created in Stalin like this immensely detailed picture of a revolution that was under threat from all sorts of angles. It exaggerated those threats and it made the regime more violent in its determination that the revolution should survive against all of these threats. And James, do you think that was because Stalin had this huge belief in the importance of intelligence agents and gathering information on everyone and that he had all these reports coming in, that that definitely seems to have shaped his view of what was happening in the Soviet Union and how the rest of the world viewed him and the Soviet Union? Um, You know, in that, I don't think that Stalin was particularly exceptional amongst Bolsheviks. Um, I mean, this was a group that had, I suppose with Stalin's exception, you know, been abroad um, in exile in Europe uh, in the years before 1917, before the fall of the old regime. And they spend, you know, uh, uh, days, weeks, hours, years thinking about why previous revolutions had failed. Why had the French Revolution failed? You know, why had 1848 failed? Why had the Paris Commune failed? And, you know, they drew the conclusion in many ways that previous revolutionaries had not been adequately ready to deal with the inevitable counter-revolution. And if they were going to succeed and they were determined to succeed, they had to respond with even greater violence than the, than the counter-revolution. And so, you know, Stalin was not alone having come to, uh, you know, a position of great authority after 1917 in being quite obsessively concerned with, you know, where those threats came, whether they came domestically, whether they came from abroad, and watching those things carefully. And I think one of the other things that we have to remember here is that they are concerned, the Bolsheviks and not Stalin alone, that they are concerned to, to preserve and protect the revolution, not just because they were concerned about the proletariat of, of Russia, but they felt that they were like a bastion of world revolution. They wanted world revolution, and they were they were in that sense, you know, concerned about the fate of the you know the working population of the world as a whole. And so, you know, to to, to murder thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, in that noble aim was in their minds justified. And Jeffrey, I wonder how you think we should view the whole period of the 1930s when you have five-year plans, you have collectivization, but you also have famines, you have you know millions dying. Uh, some historians recently have suggested that perhaps a million died for every single year of, of Stalin's reign. That how do we kind of balance the, the dramatic changes that he's trying to make to agriculture and society and politics with... I suppose you could see it almost as a reign of terror as well. Well, well, well as, as James just said, um, you know, Stalin is prepared to you know, mm-hmm. inflict that kind of mass repression, that mass violence on Soviet society in, in order to achieve his revolutionary goals. And that, that wasn't just Stalin's feeling or commitment. It was you know, part of Bolshevik culture, which went back, you know, to before the revolution, um, one one of the things that interested me in terms of my research, you know, from, from my latest book, was the extent to which which Trotsky, Trotsky's writing, particularly Trotsky's Terrorism and Communism, uh, which was published in 1920, which was a defence of Bolshevik authoritarianism and, and Bolshevik you know, repressive measures during the Civil War. The extent to which that text, Trotsky's ideas, formulations, uh, influenced, uh, you know, Stalin was very much part of Stalin's intellectual, um, you know, formation that period. So the rationalisations that Trotsky used uses to you know to justify a Bolshevik violence are exactly the same rationalizations that, that Stalin uses in the 1930s and, and there's no secret about what those uh, rationalizations uh, are uh, and if I could just pick up on 
you know, James's experience of of going into the archives and finding out there wasn't any a lot of difference, if any difference, between what Stalin was saying in private and what Stalin was saying in public. I mean, that's that's the university experience of scholars who've worked in the, the Russian archives on this material. And there's this you know um, you know cliche that's been been around for a long time, which is like you know the secret we all discovered in, when we went to work in the Soviet archives was that there there was no secret. There's no no hidden or private agenda. You know the discourse, the internal discourse, the confidential discourse is is very similar to the public discourse. You don't have to um, you know, find out what Stalin um, thinks uh, say about you know his you know this massive repressive forced revolution in various spheres which he carries in the 1930s. You don't need to find out what he's thinking about that in the archives. You can actually find out uh, find out from what he's uh, saying uh, publicly. And I was also interested in in, in Anna's point about you know the, the Bolsheviks the Soviet feeling the feeling revolution I think that's a very important very important point and, and, and perspective she brings to bear there um, and the same was true of Stalin I mean this is one of the Stalin it too was a feeling revolution um, one of my kind you know the revelations from my research and Stalin's libraries that is how much um, emotionality feeling that uh, Stalin invested in his ideas and he did in his, his reading so you know Stalin's commitment to Socialism, communism, revolution wasn't just a you know a set of abstract ideas, an ideology. It was also a set of feelings as well. And, and, and my argument is that you know, that helps us to be able to explain why it was who Stalin, who's committed to this apparently idealistic, utopian, humanistic uh, you know revolution, the communist utopia, why he's able to pursue that uh, goal through the means of of, of of mass violence. And so my argument is that it's it's the it's the emotional basis of his uh, political commitments that enables him to see through what he what he thinks is necessary in order to defend the revolution and to further the cause of socialism. And Anna, you begin your book talking about the Stalin constitution of 1936 and the victory of the socialist system. And I wonder, by 1936, I wonder what did people think of Stalin? You know, how much were they aware of what was going on in terms of the rest of the Soviet Union? And uh, were they buying into the accounts that they were hearing or uh, did they have much more ambivalent views? Mm, I mean, I think the question of public opinion is, a very difficult one, but certainly I think if you look at, at culture and the way that it's quite radically reorientated in the Stalin era, I think it gives us a sense to which, you know, culture does become much more mass orientated in a sense. So I think there would be a sense that is better reflective, perhaps, that it better serves the needs of the masses. I think that is something that we might suggest happens in the Soviet period. So I mean, to go back to, to what Jeffrey was saying about emotion, the Soviet period is very well known, of course, for you know, avant-garde experiments in the 1920s, montage cinema, for example. But what we see under Stalin is this new doctrine of socialist realism obligates all cultural producers to, to write in, in a positive tone to see reality and its revolutionary development, um, to picture you know, life not as it is at the present, but as it would be in the glorious future. But with that, we also see culture being reorientated towards mass taste. As I argue in the book, cinema, for example, takes this emotional turn, right, where this kind of dry distraction of the 1920s, as, as it comes to be decried, is now swapped for a form of cinema that's much more popular and it's formed much more orientated towards mobilizing emotion. It speaks in much more direct terms, right? If we read the Soviet press, this is now a cinema that pulls at the heartstrings, that you know, pulls, tugs, takes the viewer by the throat. It's, it's a much more kind of direct and engaging cinema. And I think we see that in, in other parts of, of cultural production as well. So I think there's definitely a sense uh, in which we might talk about culture being reorientated and perhaps better reflecting mass taste. Now, of course, that means, you know, repression of um, these older prior models. So, with, you know, anti-formalist campaigns, as they're called. So an attack on, on modernist aesthetics. And, of course, that's uh, very damaging for, for people like the famous theatre directors like Mayhold, directors like Sergei Eisenstein, who are very well known in the 1920s. But 
alongside that, I think we do see culture being perhaps better reflecting the needs of the kind of the average mass viewer. And in a way, you see revolutionary values are being normalised by this whole thing. Yes, absolutely. I think that's part of, you know, that I think cinema and other forms of, um, of cultural production are a crucial way in which the revolution comes to be internalised, right? Its values come to be communicated to to the mass public and through which the masses start, um, you know, identify with, with the goals of the state. Jeffrey, you've written in Stalin's War about the wartime leadership of Stalin from 1939 all the way into the Cold War. And I was wondering if we were to look at that period, is it... Is it like was he was Stalin outmaneuvered and outthought with the Nazi uh, Soviet pact in 1939, or did that give him valuable breathing space? Was he a successful leader in terms of the relationship with the generals, or was there just an element of the brutal ruthlessness coming through? Um, like in other words, how successful was he if we evaluate him as a as a leader during the Second World War? Well, my, my argument in, in Stalin's words, of course, is that you know he was a highly uh, successful um, war leader, um, and in fact, without his leadership, quite possibly the Soviet Union might not, might not have survived the Nazi attack on you know, Hitler. The Nazis might have won the war on the Eastern Front in some uh, meaningful meaningful way. So, you know, obviously, I, I put forward a very strong case uh, in Stalin's um, favour in that book, based. On, on, on the evidence that I found in the archives and published evidence as well and my assessment uh, of that. Um, one of the particular features of his wartime leadership was you know, the extent to which he was able to form um, a very cohesive, very dynamic, very effective leadership team, military, political uh, leadership team, and, and established very very close and effective relations uh, with his generals, and particularly key generals like uh, Marshal Zhukov, who's, uh, as you know, whose biography I wrote as well. Um, and there's a kind of certain irony with that, but because, of course, Later on, after after Stalin's death, after uh, Khrushchev's um, denunciation of Stalin at the 20th Party Congress, many of these same generals, not not Zhukov, <laughs> become you know Stalin's harshest critics, and, and they you know attack him from various points of view. In fact, try to puncture his reputation uh, as a uh, great great war leader. And one of the things I'm responding to uh, in my book, in Stalin's Wars, is is that wave of um, criticism of Stalin that emerges after the 20th Party Congress, some of which is justified, but, but other parts of it are unjustified. And then leading into the Cold War, you know, you also suggest that perhaps Stalin had a much more nuanced view of that as well, rather than just being this belligerent who was anxious to uh, take the front or open a new front against the West at all costs. No, Stalin wanted to, the, the other aspect of um, Stalin's wartime leadership that I explore in, in great detail in various publications actually, uh, is is the relationship that uh, he forges with um, President Roosevelt and with Winston Churchill uh, and with the whole experience, wartime experience of the Grand Alliance between Britain and the United States and the Soviet Union and how effective a war fighting uh, alliance that was and, and the role that, that, that not just Stalin but also Roosevelt and Churchill play in, in forging that, that particular alliance. So from Stalin's point of view, um, the experience of the Grand Alliance, or what Churchill called, called the Grand Alliance, was a very, overall, a very positive one. There were lots of problems, lots of issues, particularly in the early part of the war, but a very positive experience. So Stalin basically wanted to uh, to see the continuation of that alliance after the war, Some, you know, the continuation of um, post-war cooperation uh, with the West, with, with Britain and the United States. And he wanted to do that Partly because of his positive experience during the war, partly because um, you know he wanted a peace, a period of peace in which to um, rebuild Soviet socialism and also to uh, consolidate the gains that have been made by the revolution, by socialism, communism in other countries. But also because um, he feared a German revival. So continuing the Grand Alliance after the war was very much part of his project to contain the re-emergence of uh, some kind of military threat from Germany. So my argument is 
<laughs> you know, it's not an uncontroversial one, uh, is that, you know, Stalin very definitely didn't want the Cold War. He want, If he wanted anything, he wanted a continuing detente with the Western powers. Nevertheless, when when the Cold War comes, Stalin is, is, is obviously very able to actually to fight that Cold War. Now, having said that, that's not to say that, that okay, the West went, wanted the Cold War, the West created the Cold War, and Stalin was opposed to it, so, so the Cold War is, is the West's fault. I, I, I'm not saying that, that at all. Stalin you know, made his own contribution to the, the, the post-war breakdown of relations with the West, and thereby to the, the emergence of this uh, you know, Cold War conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States and, and its allies. Okay, and, and the contribution that Stalin made to that process was that Stalin didn't appreciate how threatening the Soviet Union and how threatening the communist movement appeared to Western leaders after the war. So Stalin had to, he didn't understand that if he wanted to continue to um, pursue his ideological perspective in the form of you know the gradual spread across uh, of socialism and communist ideas across the world there will be a price to be paid for that in terms of his relations uh, to, to the west so so my, my overall argument is that basically the cold war arises partly because the West misunderstands and mis- misperceives the nature of the Soviet threat and, and the communist challenge, but also because on the other side, Stalin is unable to see things from from the Western perspective. Okay, well, we are talking history, and tonight we are talking about the life and legacy of Stalin. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Professor Rosemary Sullivan about Stalin as a father and a husband, and to Professor Polly Jones about how Stalin was remembered in the years after his death, and also her work as a consultant on the movie The Death of Stalin. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life and legacy of Stalin. And I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Rosemary Sullivan, Professor Emerita at the University of Toronto. She's an author, poet and biographer and the author of Stalin's Daughter. And Professor Polly Jones, Professor of Russian and Schrecker Barber Fellow in Slavonic Studies at the University of Oxford and the author of Myth, Memory, Trauma, Rethinking the Stalinist Past in the Soviet Union 1953 to 1970 and Polly also acted as a consultant on the film The Death of Stalin. Well, Rosemary, I might begin with you and a question about what Stalin was like when he was at home, when he was a husband, when he was a father. What insight do we get into his character from there? Well, one would start with saying that uh, he was a very difficult man. There were, the reports that uh, Svetlana offered were brief but she did say that when her father fought with her mother, it was only she who could put her arms around her father's boots to quiet him down and console him. The relationship between father and daughter was uh, intense. Uh, Svetlana talked about her childhood as that place of sunshine until her mother died uh, when she, she, Svetlana, was six and a half. But the, la- the relationship between Stalin and Svetlana was dictated by him, they, uh, I was able to find correspondence between uh, the six-and-a-half-year-old and her father and uh, her correspondence until she was 16. He called himself uh, the poor peasant Jay Stalin and wrote to her as comrade hostess, told her never to ask, always to demand, called himself her first secretary, and she would write little letters, first secretary, I want to go to the movies. So her relationship with her father was that of the loving father to the doted upon daughter until, of course, her first uh, platonic love affair, and then she became something else to him entirely. And as time went on, she discovered just how uh, brutal and and ruthless the regime was, leading to her defection in the 1960s, about 15 years after the death of her father. That's right. Uh, She learned uh, initially how destructive uh, her father could be, when she'd fallen, uh, as a young 16-year-old does, with a, in love with an older 39-year-old filmmaker, it was totally platonic. But her father had him arrested, accused of spying for the British and consorting with foreigners and sent to the gulag for five years. So it was pretty clear who he was. And then during the terror, during the uh, late 30s, she lost relative after relative. Her favorite aunt and uncle, the Sunitsis, her uncle Pavel, her aunts later in the uh, late 40s, when her father resumed his paranoia, uh, were, were both sent to solitary confinement in Lublianka. So, you know, it was qu- quite astonishing. It was a th- 
about three years after her father's death, she changed her name, her last name, to her mother's name, leaving Stalina behind. Uh, and uh, when she defected in 67, she was able to say that uh, her father uh, never uh, regretted anything. He never apologized. She, uh, she said he, he didn't suffer any pangs of conscience. I don't think he experienced them, but he wasn't happy either. He had emptied his life in the name of power. Um, he killed many, he crushed others, and he was uh, admired by a few, is how she put it. Polly, I want to ask you about what it was like, first of all, working as a consultant on the movie The Death of Stalin. That must have been a fascinating experience. It was fascinating, yes. I um, I've, I first met Armando Unici when he came to an event in, in the college where I teach, where he, he himself studied um, English as an undergraduate and a graduate student. Um, and at that point, we, we just got talking about this film that he was planning at that point. And the interesting thing about the film is that it's based on a, a French uh, comic a, a cartoon um so a lot of the narrative was was based on that sort of imagining of the death of stalin and its aftermath and then my function was really just to sort of advise armando on how how sort of accurate that that looked whether there were other other things that should be added in or corrected but um a large part of the narrative for the screenplay was was already kind of there in the in this original um, french comic that they that they adapted but it was actually fascinating to to sort of see the project take shape who was cast in these roles of these very well-known Soviet leaders and so on. And your own work looking at de-Stalinization and what happened in those 17 years after the death of Stalin, how traumatic a period was that? I suppose how difficult was it to, to suddenly try and change how people viewed what they'd been indoctrinated with for the previous decades? Exactly. It was a very, very difficult um, process. And of course, the Soviet authorities were not anyway in the business of wanting to completely debunk Stalin or Stalinism. They needed quite a lot of um, Stalinism still to remain intact and to remain mythologized because a lot of the foundations of the Soviet system were set under Stalin's rule. Um, a lot of the things that they were most proud of um, as a system and that legitimated them uh, were achieved in the Stalin era, albeit at a great cost, industrialization, the victory in World War II. So on the one hand, it was quite a limited criticism of Stalin. But on the other hand, as you say, coming after nearly 30 uh, years of cult building, it was still very shocking to hear, for example, Stalin's character being maligned. And in particular, of course, uh, the attribution of responsibility to Stalin for the purges, um, saying that he had authorized the use of torture, saying that the, the terror was very much accelerated and escalated um, on his express personal command. These were things that people simply um, had no idea of the scale of the terror and of Stalin's personal responsibility for it. So when that was revealed by Khrushchev and then disseminated around the Soviet Union in, in the mid-50s and then again in the early 60s, there was a huge amount of shock. And you use the word trauma, and it was certainly traumatic for the party to hear these things, but also for the population to hear that really what they believed about Stalin and Stalinism was, was being debunked, even if only partially. Um, and of course, many people refused to believe what they what they heard and um, argued back against uh, these criticisms by essentially quoting the claims of the Stalin cult. For others, though, even this partial information was enough to completely um, destroy their previous image of Stalin and Stalinism. And a small minority of those people would go on to become dissidents. And even when the Soviet authorities tried to stop the process of de-Stalinization, they, they committed to sort of carrying it on in, in underground literature and, and dissident activity. You know, Rosemary, tonight we are reassessing the life and legacy of Stalin and using things like new insights from the Stalin archives and trying to uh, weigh up the different parts of his career. But I think when you look at the at the personal life, when you look at the paranoia that you described and, you know, you see it's a, it's a, it's an insight into the ruthlessness and the, the paranoid style, which, you know, you also see there in the public life. Well, there were so many dimensions to that. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me was uh, Svetlana's comment that her father, being a Georgian, never spoke Russian pr uh, precisely. He spoke with a Georgian accent, and he didn't have any subtlety. So he used silence to terrorize people. But that notion of his uh, collecting people around him who he could count on, there was a feeling right at the end before he died 
that his next victim was going to be Beria. Uh, I thought the film, The Death of Stalin, was brilliant. Though it's comic in a horrific way, it's very close to accurate. But there was one aspect of the, uh, uh, of the death of Stalin that uh, uh, wasn't in the film and probably appropriately not. Uh, just before his death, there was the, the doctor's plot where he had doctors arrested. And so when it came to diagnosing what was wrong with Stalin, all the doctors were in prison. And there was a doctor called Rapoport who was uh, waiting his execution when they came to ask him how to diagnose uh, this condition of this unnamed person. And he said, well, I think he's going to die. You know, you can't imagine anything more Baroque than that, frankly. No, and it shows how, in a way, it's the legacy of his own of his own paranoia that when he needed the medical expertise, it wasn't there. It wasn't there because he'd arrested it all. But Svetlana always said that uh, you can't uh, underestimate the way in which Stalin has been made a kind of sinkhole, a myth, uh, that in fact he was part of a system. I've interviewed Stalin's grandson, Sasha Berdonsky, in Moscow, who, of course, hated his grandfather. Uh, he was uh, Vasily uh, Svetlana's brother's um, son. Um, and uh, he said that uh, Svetlana had her father's will. She had his organized intelligence. She just didn't have his evil. And that image of organized intelligence, willpower, but devoted entirely to power. He was an extraordinary, extraordinary individual. Terrifying, really. And Polly, what do you think the memory is of Stalin today, especially in Russia? Is he still mythologized? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, certainly what is mythologized? Absolutely. And increasingly so um, with with terrible results, obviously, in the last year, especially as the, the, the myth of what, the victory in World War Two. And really, that seems to me to be the driver the need to preserve that myth of, of victory in World War II and the greatness of the Soviet Union is really um, the main factor hampering any kind of critical assessment of Stalin today. I would say that Putin has always been somewhat wary of um, really reversing some of the uh, sort of personal criticisms of Stalin um, and sort of rehabilitating him fully. Um, he has always been rather wary of doing that, which is not to say that he has not offered some kind of cautious praise, so calling Stalin a kind of effective manager, somewhat um, minimizing the importance of repression, and especially in the last few years, um, cracking down on organizations who have been committed to trying to uh, reconstruct the history of um, terror, uh, state terror and Stalinism, Stalinist atrocities such as the organization Memorial and other civil society organizations. So certainly he, he does not endorse that kind of historical investigation of the terror. Uh, and he certainly wants to mythologize the victory in World War II. Um, but I think still, even today, I would not talk about Putin's attitude to Stalin in terms of a full re-Stalinization. And I think part of the reason for that is um, that it, it's impossible, really, to fully re-Stalinize that, that narrative, given what was revealed um, in the aftermath of, of the death of Stalin, um, Khrushchev's revelations, and also the revelations under Gorbachev in the Glasnost era too much is now known really about the terror for Stalin's image to be fully sort of cleansed. Um, but certainly, you know, a monument to Stalin has just gone up in um, in Volgograd. There are persistent rumours that Volgograd is going to be renamed Stalingrad. Um, so th these things are always there in the background. And certainly there are some very strong constituencies in, in Russian society today that really favour a, a fuller rehabilitation of Stalin than Putin has so far um, been willing to countenance. But overall, of course, that many, many practices now in, in Putin's own sort of political approach are I could legitimately be described as Stalinist, I think. But that's a slightly separate issue as to um, from how Stalin himself is viewed in, in public memory today. Well, my thanks to Professor Rosemary Sullivan, author of Stalin's Daughter, and Professor Polly Jones of the University of Oxford and author of Myth, Memory, Trauma for joining our panel discussion. And we'll be back after the break as we continue our discussion on the legacy 
of Stalin. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life and legacy of Stalin. And I'm delighted to be rejoined by our panel, Professor Jeffrey Roberts of University College Cork, Dr. Anna Toropova of the University of Oxford and Professor James Harris of the University of Leeds. James, it's interesting that when we get into the details of Stalin and the material in the archives, we see that, as you've said earlier, the image that we have of him isn't probably the accurate one that there's a huge mythology around Stalin in terms of the way he was presented by Trotsky and others and that perhaps that we need to reevaluate our assessment of Stalin. Well, certainly. I mean, this Stalin archive has been open now for almost uh, 25 years and I think new consensus in many ways was, you know, shaped by the work of you know, Eric Van Rie um, and Stephen Kotkin and Robert Service, that this image that Trotsky had presented of, of Stalin as a dullard is, is quite wrong. Uh, it was Rie who observed that Stalin's ideas were, were straight, um, you know, out of kind of central Marxist uh, theory, um, that Stalin was, was actually a super, a, a, you know, very capable theorist. He was not, though, a particularly capable public speaker. I mean, the, the, the Bolsheviks really kind of admired those who were, who were capable of, you know, kind of high rhetoric, uh, particularly in the early years after the revolution. And his kind of thick Georgian accent was a bit shy about sort of, you know, coming out in those, those big public events. But he was indeed a very sophisticated, a very sophisticated thinker. And James, how do you think we should view his legacy in terms of, you know, there's a huge amount there. There's the Second World War, the Cold War. There's also uh, the, the, the terror and, and, and everything that happens in terms of the millions who died in the Soviet Union. Like it's an enormous amount to try and, and weigh up and assess. Certainly, I'm, as I listen, you know, to this distinguished panel of which I'm, you know, lucky to be a part, in many ways, you know, the field is kind of divided between those whose main project is to judge the evils of, of, of communism. There's a kind of, um, I don't know, I mean, I hesitate to say it, but a certain kind of right-wing, you know, literature that is there just to sort of say, right, communism is an evil. My work is not about sort of saying that, you know, communism was a, was a good thing, but, but there, are, there are those of us, I think, like, like Jeffrey and Anna, who really want to understand how that could have happened, and, and not to judge, but to understand. I mean, of course we have to judge. And this was a kind of hideously, uh, you know, ruthless uh, dictatorship in all sorts of ways. The great terror of, of 36 to 38, you know, was, was for many years the object of my research. And certainly 750,000 people are summarily executed in that period. And another 1.2 million people are sent to the gulag from which most don't return. And, you know, that's, that's horrific. But, you know, to understand, you know, how that could possibly have happened is a, a fascinating, you know, subject of, of, of research. And that's what I devoted myself to, sort of getting into that Bolshevik mindset. And it's not, um, it's, it's not in any sense to, to justify it, but to understand how it could possibly have happened. And when we talk about legacy and kind of, you know, what lessons can be learned, I'm not sure that there are many, many positive lessons to carry forward. You know, I don't think that we, we want to see uh, too many aspects of Stalinism in, you know, contemporary Western politics, if you don't mind me saying. Anna, in terms of the legacy, how would you evaluate, I suppose, the changes, the transformation that Stalin made to the Soviet Union and the impact of that legacy all the way up to today? Well, I think, you know, you have to bear in mind that this is an attempt to build a pretty awe-inspiring vision of, of this modern industrial society that, of course, brings the Soviet Union on this par with the other industrial giants of the period and the way it completely transformed society is is completely unprecedented. At the same time, I think you have to bear in mind that that radical social, cultural, political transformation comes at uh, a colossal cost. And it also has very little tolerance for anyone who does not fit into that vision of, of the modern society, the more perfect society. You're right. That, that's a vision that is predicated on removing you know, these diseased elements, anti-Soviet elements that do not fit into that industrialized modern utopia. And I think you can't really understand Stalinism 
and its transformation of society without, you know, also considering the, the cost of that and the way it relies on this vision of exclusion um, on anyone who does not fit into that ideal society. Very good. And Jeffrey, I'm going to leave the final word to you. Stalin, 70 years on from his death, how should we view his legacy and his impact then? Yeah, uh, judging Stalin is, is very easy, isn't it? You know, it's easy to condemn his crimes, to expose the brutalities of his dictatorship, to highlight you know, the, the intolerance, the dogmatism, the repression, the, the human misery associated uh, with, with Stalin and uh, his era. And when I you know, first got interested in, in Stalin and you know, the history of the Soviet Union in this, this, this period, um, that was the approach I had at that time, 50 years ago, which was about you know condemning and, cri- and cr- criticizing from the point of view of actually trying to um, learn lessons for you know future attempts to, to, to build socialism. And, and I think that's um, that's still a very legitimate uh, position to take and, and, and to have that perspective on Stalin and Stalinism and, and the whole a whole Soviet Soviet project. But that's not the role that I play now. On in fact I've have been playing for the last I don't know, at least thirty years. You know, I'm a historian and my you know my fundamental commitment is to explanation and to get at the truth. Uh, and you know what people how people want to use that truth, the explanation um, how they want to use that for their own political purposes, that's up to them. But but my only argument is that, you know, unless we know the truth, the full truth, unless we have, you know, a, a proper explanation, we're never going to learn any, any, any useful lessons from this uh, particular bit of history. Very good. And, and Jeffrey, would you, in terms of the type of person Stalin was, how would you describe him? You know, some have described him as a psychopath, a tyrant, a totalitarian dictator. What insight would you have into how his his mind worked or the personality of Stalin? You know, he had a temper. He neglected his family. He was over-obsessed with politics. He was certainly very ruthless. He was over overly suspicious. Yeah, I could go on. Stalin's defects as a personality, his character, are not the explanation for what he did, for his impact on history. You know, you can't explain Stalin or what he did by reference to the fact that he was a madman, he was psychotic, he had a bloodlust, all those kind of things. There is absolutely no evidence for that kind of picture of Stalin. And and when you go into the archives, you know, what you find is definitive proof that those kind of perspectives on Stalin are fundamentally flawed. Now, the, the way you the way you explain Stalin is through his politics and his ideology. It was his politics and ideology that drove his personality, and it was politics and his ideology that drove his action and his impact on the world in all its negative aspects. And to me, you know, that's the fundamental lesson of, of Stalin, of the Stalin and Stalin era, is that what can happen when you have this really powerful politics and ideology operating in a particular set of historical uh, circumstances and how that can have all these kind of neg- negative consequences in terms of Stalin's uh, brutal dictatorship and the suffering of millions of people. That, to me, is the fundamental lesson uh, of Stalin and his hearing. It, it, it's the impact that a particular kind of politics and ideology can have on the world. Okay, well, I think that's a very powerful note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to Professor Geoffrey Roberts of University College Cork, Dr. Anna Toropova of the University of Oxford and Professor James Harris of the University of Leeds. And my thanks also to Professor Rosemary Sullivan, Professor Emerita of the University of Toronto and Professor Polly Jones, also of the University of Oxford, for joining me earlier on the show. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, to Shannon Murphy on research and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.